Uh, we are in our series entitled Target of Discipleship. We're talking about, last, last week we talked about discovering disciples, and this week we want to talk about developing disciples of Jesus Christ. Now, we, when you hear the word disciple, many different thoughts enter our mind, even when we hear the term Christian. Um, we know that we live in, in an information age, and everybody has an opinion. Uh, one only need to go to one of the, the websites of news and see a controversial article and see the comments underneath it, and you'll find out really quickly everybody has their own opinion. Uh, and it's very, very firmly rooted in their mind. And this past week, there was, an, there was a video that just got released by the website called BuzzFeed. And it says, I'm a Christian, but I'm not. And in this video that got, it went viral very, very quickly, uh, people had a lot of different responses. They wanted to stand in front of the camera, and, camera, and they, they would say things like, I'm a Christian, but I'm not perfect. Or I'm a Christian, but I'm not homophobic. Or I'm a Christian, I'm not unaccepting. Or I'm a Christian, and I'm not uneducated. Or I'm a Christian, and I'm not judgmental. Or I'm a Christian, and I'm not ignorant. Or I'm a Christian, and I'm not conservative. These are people that are, consider themselves to be accepting, queer, gay, feminist. Now, such cultural videos will generate a lot of different buzz and get a lot of people likes and views and comments on them. But there were some people that responded, and they said, you know, they might have said that. They said, I'm a Christian, but... But one of the things that never came out was, I'm a Christian, and I'm a follower of Jesus. I'm a Christian, and I follow the Word of God. I'm a Christian, and I follow the commands of God. It was all put in this culturally accepting way, where I want to I have Jesus, and I want to be with the culture, and the culture will love me. But see, the Bible doesn't show that. It says that if you're going to really follow Jesus, the culture will reject you. But we have this idea that I can have Jesus and the world. And we want to have Jesus in the commands of God. And Jesus kind of changes that. I mean, Jesus, people love to come to Jesus, by the way. People love Jesus, and they hate the church. That's kind of the, the phraseology today. I like Jesus, but I hate his church. And I've had people say that to me, and I'm like, well, that's like saying, I love you, and I hate your wife. It's like, well, you hate my wife. you got an issue with me, because we're a couple. It's usually the other way around, but... You see what I'm saying? Get my, the idea that I'm trying to convey to you is that people want to have Jesus, but they want Jesus on their own terms. And on, on the terms that Jesus lays out. And, and it was no different in Jesus' day. People came to Jesus for all different kinds of reasons. I had a, a, a man who was the, used to be the president of the National Association of Evangelicals, a million-member uh, group in uh, the United States. And I was ch- sitting across from him at a Starbucks in northern Illinois once, and we were talking about something. And this is the man who actually introduced Ronald Reagan when he gave his Evil Empire speech in Orlando in 1983. His name is Arthur Gay. And I was talking to Art, and uh, he's an older man now. And uh, I said, Art, we're talking about theology. We're going back and forth. And a younger man learning from this older man. And he says, you know, the older that I get, and I, I see that people believe not necessarily what is true, but it's what they, they believe it's what they need. And I thought about that. And it was a very profound thing. See, people came to Jesus with, not necessarily because they saw him as the truth. Some did. Some came because they'd eaten of the loaves and the fish and their bellies were full. Others saw him as a political liberator. Others saw that he was the one that was going to stick it to the Roman government and remove the Roman occupiers. Others wasn't like Jesus because he stuck it to the Pharisees and the, the religious teachers of the day. People came to Jesus for all these different kinds of reasons. 
And so these crowds come. That's what we have in Luke chapter 14 in our passage for today. These crowds come to follow Jesus. And there's just masses of people. And then Jesus does what we as pastors call crowd-thinning messages. Jesus does this quite a bit. He violates every, what we call, church growth technique that you could think of. And he does this. He's done this before. Like there's a time where a crowds are coming to him, and Jesus says something profound. He goes, unless you eat of my flesh and drink of my blood, you'll have no part for me. And you just wonder if the other disciples are looking at Jesus going, are you serious? Come on, Jesus. This isn't how you grow a church. Come on. Why are you talking about eating my flesh, drinking my blood? You're freaking people out. And here's, here's this, Jesus lays down the condition, and I want us to look at this passage and really jump into this as we discover that he is really laying out before us what it means to be a disciple. And it says that great crowds accompany him, and he turned and he said to them, and he's, what he's doing is he's laying out something for all of us to see, to understand this is what it means to be a follower of Jesus. It's not saying, I, I am a Christian and I do this. It's, I'm a Christian if I do this. That's what it's required. And he's saying that, If you want to be a real follower of Jesus, then you need to develop as a follower of Jesus. And he's showing showing all of us, this is the cost of discipleship. This is what it means to follow me. And that's what we're going to look at today. But before we go any further, let's ask for God to bless our time together. Father, we ask you to speak to us. Open wide our hearts to the truth of who you are. Lord, if we're harboring sin, may we drag it into the light of your presence that we might confess it and turn away. And Lord, may we wrap our arms around the cross of Christ and cling to it until we are free and we are following you with all of our heart, soul, mind, and strength that we might be changed. So Lord, please show us yourself today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, we're jumping into this passage, and I do. I want us to start off in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied him, and he turned to them and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now this is hard. Okay, re- Jesus, are you really saying that you, I have to hate my, my parents? Are you telling me, Jesus, that I'm to hate my spouse? Am I really to hate my kids? What, what are you saying, Jesus? And Jesus, he, he, he's laying it out. And he's, what he's doing is he's saying, if you want to follow me, you crowds that are here, everybody says, I'm a Christian, I'm a Christian, this is the condition. And I'm giving you a difficult condition if you want to follow me. That's the first thing I want you to write down in your notes. These are the difficult condition that God has for us to follow him. And that's what, see, developing disciples is helping people see that. If you, because people will come to you and they say, hey, I like your church, I like the music, it's all happy, yeah, 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 yeah. And you're like, oh, great, we got people coming to church. We got people sitting in the pew, that's great, that's fun. But see, helping someone to develop as a disciple is to show them what it really means to follow Jesus. It's not trying to minimize it. It's not trying to get him to listen to K-Love or Moody Radio. Okay, it's not trying to get him to listen to a Christian t-shirt or vote Republican. That's not what it means to be a follower of Jesus. He's saying, this is the condition that God has laid out for you to follow him. And it's a difficult condition. He's saying that you must hate. If anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother and wife, And children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now let's focus on verse 26. If anyone comes to me, does not hate. The word, Greek word for hate is messai. And it means hate, detest, love less, and esteem less. The idea is of comparison. 
It's not just hate for hate's sake. It's saying in comparison to this other thing, this is what you are to have. Okay? In comparison to this, you are to do that. In comparison to all other earthly relationships, they're to be second place. You are to love me over everything else. That is the priority that you are to have. God is calling us to have a radical new love. It carries the idea of feeling that is a response when compared with something else. If you love this, for example, you hate that. Like for, here's an example for you. I might love the Bears and hate the Packers. Anyone else here hate the Packers? Okay. But do I really hate the Packers? Now, some will be like, yes. But if it's in, the, it's in the Super Bowl and the Packers are playing the Patriots, I may not hate the Packers as much then because I hate the Patriots more. See, it's in comparison. So I, may not, I might root for the Packers then. So I don't really hate them to hate them. I hate something else more. It's the idea of comparison. So he's saying there, in comparison with your relationship, with your your parents, with your wife, with your children, with your siblings, you are to hate. In other words, you need to have a radical new love, a love for God that transcends everything else that you know. That's what God's calling you to do. He wants you. If you're going to follow him, you have to love him with all of your heart, your soul, your mind, and strength. It's not keeping rules. That's not what it's about. It's not doing that. It's not trying to earn God's favor. We already have it in and through Christ and what he has done on the cross. You can never be good enough in the sight of God. You can never buy God off. You can never do enough good deeds to make God happy with you. You can't earn his salvation because salvation is entirely by grace through faith. It's an unmerited gift that God gives you. You did not earn and God is saying to you, if you're going to follow me, I've given you this, but you have to, you have to love. We need to love God. And it has to, that love has to trump every other love that we have. But honestly, many people don't. They have say, I love God, but when, the, when it gets difficult, that's where you find out where that love really is. For example, there was this, I remember hearing a woman talk about her children, and her children weren't Christians, and it really hurt her that her children weren't following Jesus. And she said, if, if I go to heaven and my children aren't there, I don't want to be in heaven. And I thought, okay, now you've really identified where your love is. Your love is not for God. Your love is for your children. And your, children, your love for your children trumps your love of God. And you're putting that higher than your love for God. See, it has to, your love for God has to trump that. It trumps, trumps every ever single relationship that we have. God's calling us to a radical new love. He's also calling us to have a radical new loyalty. Loyalty. Now, he says here, it's interesting that he starts off with father and mother. Now, in the ancient world, more so than in, uh, and in still our majority world cultures than on our own, uh, the parents had supreme authority. You followed their counsel and took care of them before anything else. Your job is to take care of them as they age, to watch over them, to provide for them, to listen to them, to honor them. And as I mentioned before, this concept is still very much done and observed in a majority world cultures. Parents tell the child who they are allowed to marry, what the religion will be, what job or career they are to choose, etc. Now, for us in the West who are very individual in how we make our choices, it's a very foreign concept. But in other cultures, that's very normative, very normal. And, and in, when Jesus is saying that your duty and responsibility is to me before any other loyalty... Now, where are you loyal? Who are you loyal to? What's the number one thing in your life? 
that you were loyal to. That above all else, that's where your loyalty lies. I mean, we, and we see people all the time. People want to put God with something on equal par with it. It's God and country. No, it's God then country. It's, it's not God and family. It's God then family. God then career. All of those things have to be, I mean, much lower on the list than God. We have a new loyalty. He wants our loyalty. He wants us to do what he commands, not what others think. Notice the last part of verse 26. Yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. See, we are to have a radical new love, loyalty, and a radical new life. Think about that. I mean, following God is more important than your own life. It's a radical thing, but that's what God calls us to do. Do you want to grow as a disciple? Then God must have first place. Where is God not first place? Is he a part of your life or is he your life? See, incredibly, in our culture, we have people putting God under hobbies, like sports and musical performance, movies, entertainment, the internet. No, that's a, tra- that's a travesty. That's not, that's not a, the heart of a real disciple. God must trump every single thing in our life. And we're to, we're, we are to understand that the life that we have comes from God himself. It's not our own. We have been bought at a price that he gave his son to die. He bought us. He paid the price for us. He redeemed us from the clutches of sin, self, and Satan. And then we are to give our lives, our very lives, so that other people might know who Jesus is, which means suffering, which means difficulty. I love the book of Revelation chapter 12. You can turn there if you want to with me on page 1035 in our pew Bible or large print. It's 1319. And in Revelation chapter 12, this is, uh, we see the Apostle John, and he is writing and talking about these people who have givered, given their lives to testify about Jesus to other people. And they are, in essence, martyred. He says, And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Love not my life even unto death. Meaning I was willing to die for the, for the name and cause of Christ. People were willing to suffer that other people might know who Jesus is. Or Colossians chapter 3, verse 1 through 4, it lays this out very, very well. And that's on page 984 in your pew Bible. But this is Paul writing to the church at Colossae. He says, if then you have been raised with Christ, which means been raised by faith, I am participating in his resurrection life by faith in him. Then seek the things that are above where Christ is seated, meaning his work is done. He is seated at the right hand of God. His work is complete. He is not still hanging on the cross as we see some faiths. The idea that he is perpetually paying for sin and not done with it. He, he paid it once and for all. It was completely sufficient for all time that he sat down at the right hand of God. So set your mind in verse 2 of Colossians chapter 3 on things that are above, not on things that are on, our, on earth. For you have died, and your life is hidden with Christ and God. When Christ, I love this part, who is your life, he is your life. Is Christ your life? Does he define the essence of who you are? Is he your purpose and overriding passion? That's who he wants to be in your life. God cannot be second place. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with him in glory. He's not a part of our life, but the embodiment 
meaning, purpose, thought, goal, aspiration, and all-encompassing pursuit of our life. Our life exists only because of His. And if we want to develop as disciples, we need to realize that truth. Let's go back to our text. Let's look at verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. See, this is a very hard truth and a daring challenge for anyone who chooses to follow. This is God. He's giving you a challenge now. This is the challenge that God has had, has for you. Now, this, is, this challenge is one that is overwhelmingly hard. You have to understand something. We all must understand this. When Jesus is talking about the cross at this time, the disciples didn't know about that he was going to die on the cross. They didn't know this yet. So when Jesus is presenting this, and we can look back through eyes and see that, but then you have to put it in their mindset. They didn't understand all of what Jesus was laying out. And the idea of carrying a cross was horrific to them because of what the cross symbolized. In our culture, we have a symbol. We see the cross. It's become a piece of jewelry. Uh, for some cultures, they see it as, as a negative or horrific thing. Uh, we think of those who, who may have... Uh, have been suffered under, under a church or been suffered in a, in a regime, in a, in a holy war of some sort. Uh, we see those who have see the cross as hypocrisy. We see those that see it as a symbol of hope and a symbol of jewelry. I mean, symbols have meaning that communicate things to us. But in that culture, the cross symbolized capital punishment. It symbolized shame. It symbolized, symbolized guilt. And to see that symbol would evoke Horrible feelings in people. I, I, I remember uh, when I was in uh, India, and I uh, there's a the picture actually of the swastika in India. And in the Indian culture, the swastika is an ancient symbol of peace. Um, but in our culture, it obviously has a different meaning. And I remember when I was looking to buy something for my family, and we were at a place where my interpreter Kieran Kieran looks at me and he goes, "Why don't you buy this for your family?" And I went, "No, I don't think hanging a swastika up in my house is going to be the best symbol." It conveys a different meaning in my culture, especially to my neighbor who's Jewish across the street. It's going to convey a totally different picture. And and it's one that puts fear into people's minds. And when when they saw that, they saw the Romans killing their own. It was a horrific, awful way to die. It was one where you were exposed naked in front of the world. We have pictures of Jesus hanging on the cross with a loincloth. We do that out of modesty. He would have been naked. They went to the nth degree to shame and humiliate the person on the cross. That's what they did. And when Jesus says, take up my cross, it was like, whoa, what, Jesus? In our culture, we'd say, that's like taking up the needle, taking up the firing squad, taking up your electric chair, take up the guillotine. It's a horrific picture. He's saying, this is going to be hard to do. It's not going to be easy. This is going to be difficult. You have to understand that. Follow Jesus is not this pie in the sky thing. It's a, bl- it's a wonderful, great blessing, but it's hard to do. And we see that going on in our world. We see people that are taking up their cross even at the loss of their own life. For example, this past year in 2014, uh, the organization Open Doors has been keeping stats on Christians being persecuted in the world. And their research has indicated that there was a dramatic rise in Christian persecution in 2014, making it the highest it has been in 20 years. And all indicators indicate that it points to its, uh, the fact that it's going to continue to rise. The Center for the Study of Global Christianity estimates that 70 million Christians have been martyred in the last 200 years. 
And, and for the first 10 years of the 21st century, 1 million Christians have been killed, approximately 100,000 each year. Those are sobering statistics, which means 273 Christians are being killed every day all over the world. And violence, though, isn't the only form of persecution, by the way. It could mean the loss of job. It could mean ostracized from their family, kicked out of their community, while still others are being denied or fired from their jobs. And we, and we need to wake up to the understanding that people are not just, persecution's not just coming, it's here. It's already here. And I pray that we are faithful. See, one of the most renowned scholars in the world in the study of the martyrdom in Christianity is Todd M. Johnson. He was a professor of mine and mentor while I was in seminary, Gordon Conwell. And he tells a story about David Barrett, his co-author on many works. And he writes this. He says, David Barrett pioneered the quantitative study of martyrdom. In other words, he's studying how many martyrs there are. And he died uh, just a couple of years ago at the age of 83. But Barrett told me the story when he was invited to speak to a group of wealthy industrialists. These are the power brokers. These are the guys with massive amounts of money, but they were Christians. And they wanted to reach the world for Christ. So they asked Barrett, who is this world expert, and they said, what is the most effective means of evangelism of sharing Jesus with the world? What is it? What's the most effective means uh, so we can invest all of our money to hurry up in the evangelization of the world? And Barrett responded. He said, we have been engaged in in-depth research on this subject. And we think that the most effective means might be Christian martyrdom. Now, you can imagine that. How's the industry going to receive that? By the way, yeah, you have to have people die. And there was an awkward silence until one industrialist, he got up enough courage and he asked, Dr. Barrett, could you tell us the second most effective means of evangelism in the world? See, Jesus said as much that we're, we're called to give our lives. And die, as Jesus said in John chapter 12, verse 23 through 26. And you could turn there, or you can just listen. And that's on page 899. And John is writing, um, and he's, he's, he's mentioning what Jesus had said in verse 23. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. See, in order to find our life, we must lose it. It's a costly thing to do, but it's worth the price. See, we will suffer and we may die. But what awaits is far greater than anything that this world has to offer. Nevertheless, it's going to be very, very hard. And we must ask ourselves, are we willing to pay that price? Look at verse 28, 32. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? This is, we're back in our passage, Luke chapter 14, excuse me. Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or what king, going out to encounter another king in war, will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Now what is God telling us there? 
See, the idea is, is these, these two situations. You have a man that's building and you have a, man, a king that's going to war. And he says both need to sit down and think things through. The idea, even a picture there of deliberate, is to think through, ponder. Don't make a rash decision. So he's saying there, if you're going to follow me, you need to think very carefully about what that means. See, we have a tendency to kind of overlook that. That doesn't grow churches, and that makes evangelism hard. So we go, just pray the prayer. Everything will be okay. Like it's some magic formula. Just make a decision for Jesus. Just raise your hand right now. You don't need to think. Just do. No, he's saying here, think about it. Think about what you're about ready to do. It might well cost you your life. Think about this. Think about it. It's a heavy thing that God is laying on us. I want to share a story about Dietrich Bonhoeffer. I don't know if many of you know about Dietrich Bonhoeffer, an amazing man of God, was a German theologian during World War II. He was arrested for participating in a plot. At the beginning of the world, he was a complete pacifist. But as the war went on and he saw just how horrific Hitler was doing, what he was doing, he helped engage in a plot to help take Hitler out. But he also led what was called the Confessing Church because the church had become compromised during World War II. Uh, the churches had begun swearing allegiance to Hitler, Da Führer. And so they would even come and dedicate babies to the Führer. They would baptize baby or children in the name of the Führer. They would praise the Führer in the services. This is how horrific the church and polluted and compromised the church had become. And Bonhoeffer leads what becomes known as the confessing church. These are people that are willing to stake their life on the cause of Christ, in the name of Christ, to live out the commands of Christ. And uh, he eventually is captured, and three weeks before the Allies, he's put into a concentration camp. Three weeks before the Allies to liberate him, he is uh, executed. But he wrote a book called Nachtfolge in German. And uh, it means the, literally the cost of discipleship, I believe. But he said this. He talks about this. He says, when Christ calls a man, he bids him come and die. It's probably the biggest phrase that comes from this excerpt. When he calls you, he calls you to die. Are you willing to pay that price? Are you willing to die? It may be a death like that of the first disciples who had to leave home and work to follow him, or it might be a death like Luther's who had to leave the monastery and go out into the world. But it is the same death every time. Death in Jesus Christ, the death of the old man at his call. And he might even literally call you to die because that's what he did with Bonhoeffer. Are you willing to die? Not just metaphorically, but are you willing to give your life because you see how precious he is? How much he is worth, how much he has done for you? And, and he's, he's saying, that's what he's saying to us. If you want to develop as my disciple, you have to die to yourself. You have to die to your preferences. You have to die to your sinful desires. You need to give your life for me. See, Bonhoeffer, time and time again, wrote about something called cheap, he called cheap grace. Cheap grace. He said, cheap grace and there's costly grace. This is what he said. This is what we mean by cheap grace. When people talk about salvation, saying, I can follow Jesus, I'm a Christian, but I'm not, just like we talked about in the video. He says, this is the grace which amounts to the justification, or the justification means declared righteous, justification of sin without the justification of the the repentant sinner, who departs from sin and from whom sin, sin departs. He's saying there that if you're a follower of Jesus, then you're going you're gonna to leave, you need to leave that life of sin. You can't continue to live in it and call yourself a Christian. In the mind of God, you are not. 
You are not. If you're living in a state of sin, not to say you're not going to struggle, but if you're living in that state of sin, he's saying you can't do it. That's cheap grace. That's not what God called. That's not the price he paid. He didn't die on the cross for you to stay in your sin. He died on the cross to set you free from it. He's saying there, cheap grace is not the kind of forgiveness of of sin which frees us from the toils of sin. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow upon ourselves. Oh, I made a mistake. I struggle. You sinned against God. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without requiring repentance. You're forgiven. You don't need to repent. No, that's not what the scripture says. Repent and believe. Or believe and repent. The idea is of turning away from. Baptism without church discipline. The idea of keeping purity in our walk with the Lord and being disciplined as a church together where we, we confront people in sin and if they're willing to be unrepentant, we're willing to put them out of the fellowship. Communion without confession. This is not even thinking about communion. You need to confess your sins. It's just taking it without thinking and understanding what Christ has done for you. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross. Grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. He goes on, costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It's the pearl of great price to buy, which the merchant will sell all his goods. It's the kingly rule of Christ, for whose sake a man will gladly pluck out the eye, which causes him to stumble. And it's not a literal plucking out. The idea is, it's, a, it's hyperbole, it's intentional overstatement. The idea of doing everything that you can to not sin. It is the call of Jesus Christ at which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again. The gift which must be asked for. The door at which a man must knock. Such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. It is costly because it costs a man his life. And it's grace because it gives a man the only true life. It is costly because it condemns sin and grace because it justifies the sinner. Above all, it is costly because it cost God the life of his son. You were bought at a price, and which has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our life, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace is the incarnation of God. It's the idea that God gave the best of what heaven had to offer for you. He gave the best of what heaven had to offer for you. And what do we do? How do we respond to that great gift? God gave him son. He loved you so much that he was willing to give his life. The most precious thing in heaven was paid for you. And yet we just go on and continue on in our sin. He came to die to set us free, not to stay in. See, some cannot pay that price. Jesus Jesus told us as much in the parable of the sower in Matthew chapter 13. You can turn there if you wish or not just listen in. Some of you are already familiar with the story that's page 818 if you do want to follow follow along. But Jesus tells the story and he's using it as an example in this parable. He says, a sower went out to sow. He's planting seeds. And as he sowed, some seeds fell along the path and the birds came and devoured them. Other seeds fell on rocky ground where they did not have much soil, and immediately they sprang up since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and produced grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. Then he goes to verse 18, and he explains the meaning. He says, Hear then the parable of the sower. 
When anyone hears the word of the kingdom and does not understand it, the evil one comes and snatches away what has been sown in his heart. It's the devil. He takes it away, gives them reasons not to believe in their mind. This is what was sown along the path. As for what was sown on rocky ground, this is one who hears the word and immediately receives it with joy. Yet he has no root in himself, but endures for a while. And when tribulation or persecution arises on account of the word, he immediately falls away. This is the person who is, he loves Jesus. He might have been baptized. He's saying, praise the Lord. He's saying, amen. But when times got tough, when persecution got hard, when people in the culture started calling out and saying that he was a bigot and intolerant and unloving and a hypocrite, he couldn't take it. So he gladly sided with the culture. Because he couldn't pay the price. Then he goes on. He's saying, in verse 22, As for what was sown among thorns, this is the one who hears the word, but the cares of the world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and it proves unfruitful. They don't want to give to God. They don't want to be generous. They see what everybody else has. That's what they want. They want fame. They want fortune. They want power. They want esteem. And so the deceitfulness of riches takes them away from God. And it chokes it. And they prove that they are not really truly disciples. And then verse 23. As for what was sown on good soil, this is the one who hears the word and understands it. He indeed bears fruit and yields. In one case a hundredfold, in another sixty, and in another thirty. See, the parable is profound. It's showing us that there's going to be all these different responses. But the one who continues to persevere and bear fruit, that's who a true disciple is. That's a condition that God has laid out for each one of us. I mean, what is keeping us? I mean, what is keeping us from following God with all of our heart? Is the seed falling on your heart and you're now yielding fruit? Why not, if not? If you're truly a child of God, that's what's going to happen. Living a life of holiness. Are you taking up your cross? Do you love Jesus more than your parents, your spouse, your children, your siblings? If you truly are of Jesus then you need to take root and bear fruit. I want to go back to our text for a moment. When Jesus says, let's go back to Luke chapter 14. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be, be my disciple. The word bear is in the present tense, meaning that it is to, uh, it's to be ongoing right now. It's in the active voice. means that you're the one to be doing it, not done to you. The, um, and the idea is, is that it's aimed at us as individuals. In other words, you have to be the one to bear your own cross. Right now. It's not for those in the past, not for tomorrow, but now. It's the idea of present, being present. Now, what I find, the next part is often what gets overlooked. It says, come after me. What's fascinating is how the Greek word come is uh, how it's used. It indicates following, but it's in the middle or passive voice, meaning that God is working in you for for you to follow him. See, we can't come to God and follow Jesus unless God enables you, enables us. Did you know that? Jesus said of this of himself in John chapter 6, verse 44. He says, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent, him, sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on that last day. See, it is the Spirit of God working in you to bring the life of the Son of God manifest through you. In other words, it requires God's help. See, it's going to be hard following him, but you need God's help if you're to truly do what God wants you to do. So many of us, as we've talked about before, we let the Spirit of God go to the charismatics. But that's not true. As Christians, and if you are a true follower of Jesus, and if you have trusted in him at the moment of your salvation, God gives you his spirit to bear witness with your spirit that you are his child, to manifest that son, his son in you, as Romans chapter 8, verse 9 through 11 
says, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the Spirit, if in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you. Anyone does not have, who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. If you do not have the Spirit of God within you, you're not a Christian. How do you know if you don't have the Spirit of God within you? Well, if you're living according to the flesh. It makes me question whether or not you truly know who Jesus is. But he goes on in that passage. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit work in you. And skip down to verse 16 of Romans chapter 8. This is how we really know that we, if we know Jesus. The spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. The idea there, he's saying that God's spirit gives testimony and inner conviction within ourselves that we are followers of Jesus, but the reality and where the rubber meets the road is, are we willing to suffer for the glory of his name? Are we willing to do that? Are we really truly willing to suffer for the name of Jesus Christ? See, the point John wants to make, give us here is not that it's better to be... Uh, not that he's, he's, saying, he's saying to us, the Spirit of God will help us to follow him and grow into the people he wants us to be. Now, I want to focus on the last two verses in verse 34 and 35 of Luke chapter 14. He says, salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use either for the soil or for the manure pile. That's a pretty dynamic picture. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. See, this p- passage comes with a warning that is heartbreaking. This is a heartbreaking ending right here. In Jesus' day, most salt came from the Dead Sea. I've been in the Dead Sea. You just float in it. There's the only thing coming in. It's not going out. No water going out at all. There's so much salt that it causes you to float and parts of your body to sting when you get in. And you think, okay, you just float there, and you're like, this is neat. And after 10 minutes, you're like, I want to get out now. This is boring. You just float there. It's the Dead Sea. But people would draw salt from it. And he, in this, this, uh, salt that they would give would be contain impurities. And if it wasn't processed right, then it wasn't useful. In fact, it would have been, had such a poor taste if it was processed poorly, it would be completely useless. It couldn't be used for food preservation, taste, or anything else. So he's saying if the conditions that Jesus gives us are not met, then we will become worthless. We see this in the book of Revelation chapter 3. Revelation 3, 15 through 17, and that's on page 1030. When John writes, and he's quoting the words of Jesus, I know your works, you were neither hot nor cold. Would, you, would that you were either hot or cold or hot. Excuse me. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say I am rich, I have prospered, and I need nothing, not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. See, he's not saying there, I want you to be for Jesus or against him. Some people think that. Uh, If you're cold or you're hot, that's great. As long as you're not lukewarm, that makes me sick. No, the idea is being useful. Cold water would be useful. It's refreshing. You ever had cold water on a hot day? Oh, it feels so good, doesn't it? But have you ever had, you're really desperate for water, and you open up your car and you realize you have a water bottle there, and it's been 95 degrees outside, and that that bottle of water has been sitting there, and you pour it, and you take a drink of it, and what do you do? It's disgusting. 
You know, or you have hot water. Let's just say you've had a hot, you've had a really hot, bad day. You want to take a hot bath or hot shower, just cools you. I mean, it feels nice. Just get your body relaxed. See, that hot water is useful. That cold water is useful. That lukewarm water is not. He's saying that I want you to be useful. Are you not? It's a warning for you. This is a heartbreaking warning. He's saying that you are completely worthless if you're not, if you are not doing and following these conditions. You might think you're in it, but you're really worthless. See, God has made us to be useful. Did you know that? God, God saved you to do good works. He saved Jean-Paul. He saved Roy. He saved Tom. He saved Becky. That's what he saved you to do, to be, to be vessels that show his glory to the world. God saved you to use you. My son likes Thomas the Tank Engine. Anybody else watch Thomas the Tank Engine? Okay. And Thomas the Tank Engine, his sole desire is to hear Sir Topham Hatt say, Thomas, you're a very useful engine. Okay, that's his sole goal, is to hear him say those words. Because Thomas isn't doing well unless he's being used and being a very useful engine. Can God say that to us, that we're being very useful Christians? I made you to be a very useful Christian. Are you being useful? So if you want to grow and you want to develop into what God wants you to be, then you have to give your life and be ready to surrender everything so he can use you to make his name known. Are you serving? That's a good question. Let's just find out how you're being useful. You ask yourself this question. Am I serving? You can't become like Jesus if you don't serve. Am I, am I giving? Am I practicing generosity? Am I, am I growing in holiness? Am I witnessing to other people and testifying about the glory of his name? These are just some things that we have to ask ourselves. See, we have this tendency to get to be fat Christians. Sit around, we hear messages, we do great stuff, but all the other stuff's for trained people. No. You have heard more messages than many in the early church ever did. You have more scholarship available to you, more opportunities, more technology. I mean, think about it. This is one of the most exciting times to be a Christian in the founda- since the history of the world. Some people are like, are you kidding me? We have persecution. Okay, that's true. But we have opportunity now to share the gospel with nations who have been closed to the gospel for hundreds, if not a thousand years. There are countries that have become open to the gospel because people have been praying for that country for generations. We are the beneficiaries of others' prayers. We have people coming from all different nations. Many of people here are from different backgrounds, different foreign languages. That's God working. That's a powerful thing. That is a great opportunity to be able to engage with other people and hear their story and how they're being faithful to the cause of Christ because someone came and shared Jesus with them. It could be my, my I mean, it could be those in, in the United States of America. It could be those from Central America or South America or people from Iraq or, or Burma. Or it could be people from Indonesia. It could be people from India. It could be people from Afghanistan or Pakistan. And the cool thing is, most of those that I just named, not all, are here right now. Because God is, is being, has used other people. Names like William Carey and Adoniram Judson, for David Livingstone. These are people that have gone and been useful to give their life to tell other people about who Jesus is, even if it meant dying to do so. We must make sure that we are being useful as well. How are we being useful? See, we've seen that there, is a, there are difficult conditions, a daring challenge, 
but he's also given us a definite course to follow. So we have to look to him. He's our supreme example. Because now, as I mentioned before, the disciples didn't know uh, everything that Jesus was about to do on the cross. They didn't get it. They were a little dense that way. But now we know what he did in light of the cross, and we can read that now back into that. He knew exactly what he was doing. And we must follow his example. Just as he bore that cross, we have to bear our own cross to put to, to death our sinful nature, our sins in ourselves. But how do we do that? How do we follow his example in becoming a, becoming a fully-fledged follower of Jesus? Well, we see we have to look at him. What did he do? How did he develop disciples? This is what he did. First of all, he interacted with sinful people. Interaction. Are you interacting with sinful people? Some people are like, yes, I am, and I hate it. God has placed you there. He's placed you there for a reason. He's put you in your job to testify to him. And I've heard people say, and we've made light of this before, when people say, oh, I'm the only Christian in my workplace. It's terrible. I'm like, wow, you're a really important person. What? Yeah, God entrusted that whole place to you. It's a pretty amazing thing. God is, wants you to testify to the glory of his name. And you're to have that interaction. And then it involves Instruction. Instruction. We are to tell people about who Jesus is and teach them to follow all of the commands of God. This instruction. I want to share with you a quote um, by a man named David Sills. But before that, Matthew 28, 19 through 20, Jesus says this. This is a part we often neglect. We say, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We're usually, that's where we stop in our understanding of discipleship. I'm going to go, I'm going to tell them, and then they're going to be baptized, and woohoo, we'll have a celebration. No, that's not it. There's another, there's another little sentence. Teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. See, we have the tendency, we want to boil it down. I just want the fire insurance. I don't need all of the extra, extreme. Just give, me the, just give me salvation. I don't need anything else. I don't need any of that following Holy Roller Jesus stuff. But he's saying there, and teaching them, that's part of it. It's all together. It's a comprehensive whole. They're meant to be seen together. Go and tell them and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. Behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. See, professor and missiologist, this is a person who studies mission and how to reach people, he said this, most of the world's Christians are Latin Americans, African, or Asian. But missions does not equal reaching the unreached. That's what we often think of. He says, the work of teaching them to obey all that he has commanded remains. See, that's the completion. That's the idea. It's not just telling, it's teaching. And night is coming. He's saying that it's, it's, it's getting to be dark. It's getting to be hard to do. But we're seeing that God teaching is showing us all that we're to reach other nations and backgrounds and people. And God is calling those people and those different cultures to go and reach other nations. We must make sure that we are doing that. We are teaching them. And lastly, we need to make sure that we are imitating and living like he did. If we're to develop as disciples, we need to follow Jesus and do what he did as best that we can. It means following him. It means giving of ourselves. It means sacrificing ourselves. Are we living like Jesus? Are we serving? Are we giving? Are we worshiping all for the glory of his name? Are we trying to excuse our sin and trying to find ways to enjoy our sinful lifestyle? We always want to get God to accept what we're doing rather than to follow him with a passion, passionate heart. 
See, we have been talking in here that a disciple is one who diligently learns, passionately loves, and purposefully lives according to the pattern of their Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I want to conclude today by asking us all some questions. The first is this. Are you different now than you were 10 years ago in your pursuit of Jesus? Have you increased in service? Have you increased in generosity? Have you become more holy? What is God calling you to do? What is God calling you to do? How are you to develop, and why aren't you to developing? What limitations are there there? I guarantee they're not from God. God's not trying to limit you. God's calling you to himself. He's calling you to give. He's calling you to follow. Are we developing, becoming the people that God wants us to be? Are we meeting those conditions? Have we taken up that challenge? Are we following that course that he's given to us? Are you doing it? I hope so. And if not, there's opportunity too. There's opportunities to serve. As we mentioned earlier in the service, there's going to be, there are opportunities to serve in greater ways. We're getting ready to, hopefully, Lord willing, in the next few weeks, kick off a bus ministry. We're going to need some bus drivers, possibly. We're going to need some, some bus monitors. We need Sunday school teachers. We need people that are servants. We need people that are working behind the scenes. We need people that are working on the sound booth or working on the camera or working with PowerPoints or whatever it is. We need people that are willing to stand at the door. We're willing to have we need people that are going out and showing the world who Jesus is, to be teaching a class, to coming alongside. What are you doing for God? Are you developing for the glory of his name? I hope we all are. But I hope we don't just sit there. Because God doesn't want us to be worthless. He wants us to be very useful Christians. Let's pray. Father, as we come into your presence, Lord, I'm reminded of our own, our sinfulness, our proclivity to complain, our desire to be comfortable, the desire to want and have things our own way. And Lord, you call us to yourself and you lay out these these conditions that are very hard. Lord, I'm reminded of your servant, Jim Elliot, who gave his life in the pursuit of you to make your name known among the Alca Indians in Ecuador, who said he who is no fool gives what he cannot keep in order to gain what he cannot lose. Lord, may we give up to gain, knowing that we are gaining you, and may we truly become the people you want us to be. Lord, may we not shortchange or circumvent or destruct this process of discipleship. Lord, we know that you want us to discover who you are through the person of your son. You want us to discover your bride, the church, but you also want us to develop as people. And Lord, to have that truth of God spoken into our lives, Lord, whether it's hearing the word of God proclaimed on a Sunday morning worship or or studying the word of God in a small group or serving alongside other believers so that we might be sharpened for the glory of your name. Lord, how often we fall short. We ask for your forgiveness. We ask that you reestablish us and you help us to take that step of faith. Lord, we know that we're, I know that there are many in this room that are still holding on to their sin and they feel so worthless and lost. Lord, I pray that you give them the courage by the power of your spirit to turn away from their sin, to abandon it and embrace you completely because you are the God of hope. You are the God of second chances. You are the God who deletes and clears our history. 
Lord, we ask that you, you direct us as a body. Lord, you are doing great things here. We pray that it might continue. How you've brought us to be a multinational, multicultural church of people that are seeking you. Lord, may we truly seek you, putting aside our own preferences, our own desires, that your name might receive great praise and honor, that your, your name might extend to the furthest reaches of not just our community, but the world and people who have not yet heard might hear the life-changing and saving message of Jesus and embrace him as Lord and Savior of their lives. So Lord, use us as a body. Glorify your name within us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.